So they did their uh, data analysis. They just put their data through algorithms. And then one insight that came is when hurricanes uh, happen, there is huge demand for uh, strawberry fruit pops. No way. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yes. We're talking about a major grocery chain which just fed raw sales data into an algorithm that scanned it for patterns. That was, that was totally unexpected for them. That was Nalini Polavarapu, a veteran data science leader with Bayer's Crop Science Division. Bayer employs more than 700 people in data science-related fields. They work with hundreds of statistical models and algorithms, though none of their center on hurricane preparedness or supermarket preferences in a crisis. The insights they glean from these models inform decisions for the world's largest plant breeding pipeline. Hi, I'm Bonnie Lee, and this is The Tomorrow Farm. A new podcast exploring what's possible for society based on what's possible in agriculture. Terms that were totally foreign when Alini started, that she had to evangelize even. Things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, even the vague and all-powerful digital seems to be on the tips of everyone's tongues now. So digital transformation is a buzzword right now. And many companies are working on uh, uh, or having some sort of digital transformation initiatives. And these buzzwords like AI, blockchain, Internet of Things, you're hearing them everywhere. So Bayer is no exception to that. As much as we are similar to those other companies, there is a difference here. And what we believe is science and technology holds a key to provide solutions to these major issues. How do we make our planet more sustainable when we are facing with challenges of human-induced climate change, social inequality, and loss of biodiversity? We actually spoke to Nalini quite a bit while we were weaving in and out of Chicago traffic en route to her main offices. So if you hear, ironically, the virtual navigation assistant, that's why. Well, we've got 40 minutes and it's um, be nice to just get to know a bit more in terms of your personal background. So you were in St. Louis only up until last year, but how long have you had you lived there before? Uh, so I came to the U.S. almost like 20 years back. Mm. In a quarter mile, merge onto I-90 East. And I came for grad school. Uh-huh. So I went to Georgia Tech to do a master's and PhD. So there uh, I got introduced to AI actually there. And so I, uh, I did a, Mac, a master's and a PhD in computer science and bioinformatics with AI as the specialization, speciality. So in 2007, like AI yeah. was unheard of. AI was unheard of. AI was so obscure. In fact, in such early stages that Nalini was Bayer, then Monsanto Company's very first data scientist. Though at the time, that wasn't even a term yet. She was called a strategic scientist. We're at the office now, a huge ultra-hip space in a style you might expect from a big tech company out west. The only giveaway that we're at an agricultural company would be the enormous antique tractor perched among the glass and chrome. It seems as much of an anomaly in some ways as Nalini's work. 
very difficult, I guess, for people to put AI yeah. with agriculture. Yeah. What has AI got to do with agriculture? Agriculture, as much as it's a very traditional field, it's a very data-driven field. Mm. And so what AI can do is get the insights from all that data and help our growers make better decisions that are good for them, for their livelihoods, and at the same time, it's good for the planet. What does Nalini mean by all that data exactly? Well, we'll decipher that more later this episode. But it's everything from the amount, type, speed, and depth of seeds planted to readouts from sensors in the soil and drones in the air. It's weather and fertilizer, spray schedules and... Can you get into more specifics of a project where you're using AI technology or, in fact, another technology maybe? Yeah, where... so one project uh, where we are using AI heavily is in our R&D organization mm -hmm. in how we develop our products. So it, traditionally, it used to take seven to nine years for us to develop a product. And these products, we grow the products in the field. We look at the plants, what the characteristics of the plants are once they are grown. And based on that, we make the decision, hey, shall I carry this product forward to the next year or not? And so when you say product, the, you're talking about a seed? That, yeah, a right. seed, okay. a plant. So yeah. that was how the breeding was done. Now, where AI can come is AI can really help enhance the decisions. So one thing that uh, we are right now applying or implementing in our R&D pipeline is today we can literally breed the seed gene by gene level. So I'll put this in context. So if you just look back, when the human genome came, it took a billion dollars to sequence the human genome. One billion dollars, 20 years back. Today, the technology advanced to such an extent that for less than $10, you can sample a corn seed and get enough information that you can make a decision on what its yield potential is going to be in our early yield trials. Gosh, that's and, uh, just mind-blowing. It, it is. And then I want to show you something. So, At this point, Nalini opened a book she had with her and took something out from between two pages, like you might a pressed flower. To me, it looks like a very nice earring, one earring. <laughs> it was not an earring, unless your earrings can hold terabytes of data, but mine certainly can't. It was a computer chip and sort of beautiful in its own way. It's two by two. <laughs> two by two in dimensions. So just this chip holds information that is equivalent to 14 acres of, of data. And right now, we shaved off one year from the pipeline. And shaving off one year from the pipeline means quite a bit. At the same time, because of being able to transfer all the testing to the field or to the lab, now we can test 5x more varieties in our pipeline. That, at the end, translates to releasing seeds to the market that deliver better productivity. It has a huge sustainability impact as well because we are reducing our testing footprint mm. because of this. And we moved all this to the lab. I asked Nalini how, given the obvious benefit of this kind of mass data analysis, there was still so much public resistance to the collection of data and to the automated analysis of it. 
We love our home assistants, but we're all wary of the rise of the robots. Nalini says that any risk, imagined or otherwise, is far outweighed by the reward. Here's what I say. You will see this passion with me in me with agriculture as well because I see the potential in AI, passion for AI, because I see the potential that it holds to move huge segments of population from poverty to prosperity. We talked about how Nalini introduced AI to the company and specifically to a group of breeders who had spent their careers relying solely on their own expertise. So from what you're describing, it sounds like a really synergistic relationship. Artificial intelligence added with human knowledge, human expertise, and you're working together yes. to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. So far, the biggest value and the biggest potential that we see in AI is when it's combined with human intelligence. So AI as a technology is really good in digesting massive amounts of data at incredible speed and then providing the insights. But some of the things that humans are good are uh, lateral intelligence, the intuition, those things that come from the experience. So sometimes AI has a tendency to miss that. Mm. So if you combine this power of AI of digesting massive data and providing the insights with the human intelligence of now figuring out what to do with that insights, that's where really the magic comes. But cunning combinations of human intellect and artificial intelligence don't just happen in labs like Nalini's. Massive digital farming platforms have begun to spring up that bring big data straight to the farm. So think of farming as an outdoor manufacturing business. We connect to all of the technologies. So the the bots, the satellites, drones, which are, you know, flying over fields. Wait, what? Bots, satellites, drones on a farm? That's Pat Christie, the founder of Conservice, one such digital farming platform that aggregates all the data farmers today are collecting. And they're collecting a lot. We're building and have built this continuum of the whole business. And you can't bring hundreds of technologies to a farmer and expect them to be the technologist to bring it all together. You heard right, hundreds of technologies. The same digital revolution that's turned our lives upside down has turned farming upside down too, or maybe right side up. 20 years ago, it was natural to see a farmer in the field, literally with a a pocket notebook, writing things down. What did I do? When did I do it? Really? Oh, amazing, right? Tractors weren't intelligent. Cell phones weren't prevalent. So it was a very word of mouth, write it down, keep track of it. And then it moved into, oh, I can have a computer. I'm going to maybe put a Word document together, maybe a spreadsheet. Farms are complex. A typical farm today is a really advanced farm in terms of technology. The machinery is smart. The tractors are driving themselves. The ability to get satellite imagery that can interpret what's happening on a field. The ability to start to connect all these digital silos. So uh, a grain bin where I might store my grain as a farmer there's now sensors that go into that bin to help ensure that that grain is preserved at its highest quality. 
There's soil sensors that can go into the field to help the farmer understand, do I need to water my, my crops? Do I actually need to irrigate my crops? The farmer today needs somebody to help them collect and organize all this different data. There's pennies to be made. For farmers, their savings add up. For conservers too. It's clear talking to Pat that he's a businessman first. The platform is slick, it's efficient, it can even help make farms more environmentally sustainable. But it all comes down to the bottom line, and it has to. It does for the farmers. Farming, especially commodity crops, is under a lot of financial stress. Farmers buy retail and they sell wholesale. Think about that. They're buying inputs, fertilizer, chemistry, seeds, fuel, tractors. So, Pat, you, you said the farmer gets one paycheck a year. And my ears just thought, my ears perked up and I thought, hang on a minute, I've never ever thought about when a farmer gets paid. In fact, I probably just assume they just live off their land. It's like, it's, it's like they don't need to get paid. But, you know, obviously they, they live for this, you know, what they get at the end. And then, is it like gambling? So they would invest in all this, in their tractors, in their laborers, in fertilizers, pesticides, and the whole process. And then at the end, they would hope that it is more than what they've spent. You know, was it that basic? It is. It, it still is. The farmer doesn't have a lot of control over some things. Weather. Mm. You can't control weather. Markets. You know, if you're in a commodity crop business, your price is determined by someone else. So unlike, let's go to a, any other manufacturing business. Uh, if I'm going to go and create buttons, more than likely I got an order from somebody that said I want a thousand buttons, here's what I'll pay you for them. And then I went and built those buttons. I know what my profit potential is. Farmers don't. What we do is we give them an advantage. We're helping them count cards during the game. Think of it as the intersection of ag, tech, and fintech. Like I said, Pat is an entrepreneur, and the void he saw wasn't just bringing fintech or financial technology to agriculture. It was in creating a profitable way to make farming more sustainable. I think once you get to profitability, you can start to refine your profits into what I call sustainable or regenerative practices that's really about soil health because in the end soil health is the key to a great crop a high yielding field meaning a lot of crop production of field doesn't always equal profits because you may have spent a lot of money to get to that high yield it's ironic one of the ways to do more with less is to get really good at precision agriculture so i'm only putting into the field what is absolutely necessary that means I'm spending less, but it also means I'm putting less into the environment. I'm using less fertilization, I'm using less chemistry, which is good for everybody. So technology has advanced to such a degree that it's taking some of the guesswork out of farming, which in turn allows farmers to make more informed decisions about inputs like fuel, fertilizers, water and pesticides. And it's only getting better, faster. They're actually using special imagery cameras to detect stress ahead of it being visible by us. And so it's, that, it's like an MRI, right? Think of it as a, an MRI in the sky. 
that can actually see these crops, look for opportunities, inform a decision maker so they can go act on it. Five years ago, 10 years ago, satellites would give you an image once every 17 days. You know, we've been launching, companies have been launching these microsatellites. Have you seen these? No, no. They're fascinating. It's the size of a shoebox. And they're putting them by the hundreds and thousands into rotation around the earth so that we can get daily live, daily live feeds. And it's getting lower cost. So, you know, again, it's going from once every 17 days to once a day to real time to very expensive to moderately expensive to, you know, less than a cup of coffee. And it's not just satellites that have gotten smaller and more powerful. Every farmer has a supercomputer in their pocket. And that enables just a whole level of opportunity. I sat down for this interview and my phone suddenly had a, had a, a suggestion on the front. It said, the recommendation, you should put your phone on silent from 9 to 10 because you have an interview. <sighs> because yeah. you guys sent me a calendar invite. The phone right. knows I had a calendar invite. It saw the word interview. Right. And it processed it. And so in some sense, you know, somewhere, some machine somewhere knows that I'm having an interview right now. And that's a little creepy. That is creepy. On the other side, I was thankful. They reminded me to turn off my phone. So... <laughs> My name is Ben Wellington. I am a, a visiting assistant professor at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, where I teach urban planners about statistics. I also run a blog called iQuant New York, where I study data sets released by New York City to try to um, make uh, improvements in our city and how we all interact with government. Ben spends all day geeking out, his words, about big data and all the ways it can improve our lives. And as a data scientist, you look at a data set and what you need to do is, is, is have an eye for that looks different. That looks interesting. Why is that happening? And, and those are leads, almost like a detective. And, and you have to follow those to, to the findings that you, that you want. Understanding what's, you know, what questions to ask and, and where those leads are is, is what makes, a, I think, a really good data scientist. You are. You are digital Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes, it's the, the, the surprising things that the data tells you that you hadn't thought of can be where some of the more interesting stories lie. And Ben has stories. From calculating the fastest route to the airport at any given time, to uncovering the most likely and unexpected time of day to get mugged, he's passed data to uncover all kinds of surprising things. One of my favorites is also a favorite of New York cabbies. I saw an article in, in Bloomberg Businessweek and it explored how New Yorkers tip in their taxis. Because when you tip, you can actually put it on your credit card. The story said there were spikes at 20, 25, and 30%, which makes sense because there's a button that says, do you want to tip 20, 25, 30%, or other? So most people would click the, the 20 button because they just want to get out of the cab. But what I noticed in this chart was that way more people tipped 21% than 19%. And this didn't make a lot of sense to me. I understood why there was a spike at 20, but, but there shouldn't be a difference between 21 and 19, right? Are all these people like hitting other so they can tip an extra 20 cents? But, you know, so that's the kind of thing where I'd say, you know, you have to look for oddities. And as I dug into the data, I realized that, that basically what was wrong is how the, the magazine had calculated what a tip was. In fact, it depends on what you're tipping on. Are you tipping on the base fare or the base fare and taxes or the base fare and taxes and tolls? 
My favorite part about that was that in doing so, I actually found out that the taxi tipping algorithms in New York City cabs was different depending on the manufacturer of the credit card machine. And so depending on which computer it was, when you hit 20%, you would pay a different amount of tip. So I wrote about this and showed that some drivers are making three to $400 more a year because of the programming in the cabs. And within three weeks, this, they had reprogrammed the tipping algorithms in all, in all the New York City cabs. You see, you're solving crime one, at, one thing at a time. Right. <laughs> I love it. So I made the tips a little higher for everyone in New York City. Oh, my goodness. Which is good for the drivers. Uh, I feel good about it. But it's an example, again, of just of the kind of thing that, that would sit in a database forever and nobody would act on until it was made public. It's not just access to data that's driving change. It's sheer quantity. Some traffic apps, for example, depend on users to continually improve the accuracy of their data. The more people use and contribute to the data set, the more beneficial it is for every user. The same theory applies in basically all data applications. Remember Nalini from earlier? She told me the algorithms she's using actually aren't all that cutting edge. The algorithms are those that we are using. They didn't just come in 2000 or uh, 2010, in the last two decades. They have been there for uh, 50 to 70 years. They were there for quite a long time. The only reason they didn't become mainstream is because they require, one, vast amounts of data, and two, they require computational power. So in the last two decades or three decades, we collected huge amounts of data, and we were also able to enhance the computational abilities. So that, may, that gave these algorithms life. But if we're getting more data all the time, does that also mean the results are always changing, I asked her. It changes all the time, but also their patterns. And I would say the way we use computational technology is how do you identify those patterns that are meaningful that can help find a solution for something. Will that solution ever last? Or will is that the only solution? Or will that solution have 100% uh, accuracy? No. But at least if we can find something better than what we have, that is all we are looking for. So I'm hearing that now farmers have at their fingertips a lot of information and, and in, with that comes with decision-making. Yes. So that's down to the individual farmer. Correct. Are they sharing it between themselves? Uh, every farmer's different. Every farm operation's different. In general, that information for the farmer is their, is their lifeblood. It, it is, it, it's at the heart of their unique farming practice. Many farmers see their neighbors as competitors, which may be another thing that seems, why would a farmer think the farmer, because they're competing for markets, they're competing for land if they're trying to grow their business. So they don't always share amongst themselves, mm. but they will share in peer groups. And that's society as a whole. It is. It's no different than no. you and I, right? That's right. There's some things we don't want to share because it's like, well, no, that's my information. Right. But then there's other apps like, say, Google Maps, yep. where we are saying, yep, we're tagging ourselves into that restaurant and it was a good restaurant so that someone else in the neighborhood might know. Yep. I mean, is there an app that farmers share that's kind of like that, that we can relate to? I think they call it Facebook. 
Facebook was the first thing we had, which we started nine years ago, which seems like such a long time ago. Our reason for starting it was just to talk about our Tom family and Tom Farms, basically being our own advocate. I'm Cassie Tom Roland. I work for our family farm called Tom Farms in Leesburg, Indiana. Cassie and her friend Elizabeth, both on the line, are a few of the tens of thousands of farmers Pat mentioned who are sharing advice and stories on social media. So a long time ago, probably back in, I don't know, it's probably been seven years ago, actually, Elizabeth's sister, sister-in-law, Stacy, was involved uh, with TPAP, which is the executive program for ag producers. So during that program, um, we were in, all in class together and for the most part, there aren't a lot of women that attend this. Um, so we were probably like one of two of 10 or less women attending this. The rest of them were guys. Um, and that's completely normal as we're kind of used to that. So my name's Elizabeth Jack, and I work on a family farm in the Mississippi Delta. We've been farming here for since about the late 1970s. Elizabeth and Cassie farm far away enough from each other that they don't view each other as competitors. Back in the day, if your farm's struggling, you're not going to go in the coffee shop necessarily and be like, man, I, I hope we get our operating loan this year. But I feel like with when it's not your next door neighbor, um, it's, it's a little bit, there's more transparency, especially if you can build that trust and the friendship that we have in our group. It's clear from talking to Elizabeth and Cassie for an hour plus that they know each other really well that they talk all the time and that they lean on each other. And being able to communicate easily online hasn't only meant friendship. It's meant valuable business advice among peers, something that simply wasn't available before when farmers were separated by geography and competing with their closest neighbours. I always think it, and it's always good to broaden your perspective and to see outside. We have a really good friend of ours that we've met from Brazil that we talked to at least once a quarter and we've been down to her farm and she spent two weeks on our farm last year. Climate is very similar and we are constantly sharing ideas with her through email. And that's how we actually got to know one of our contacts in Italy. Cassie and Elizabeth actually traveled to Italy together in early 2020, along with six other female American farmers sponsored by Bayer to tour local farming operations and talk about their experiences and techniques. He found us on social media, probably because of hashtag or something like that that I had created out there. And he said, hey, I'm in the U.S. I'm from Italy. Can I come visit your farm? And I was like, of course, we always open our farm to visitors, no matter what industry you're in. Social media hasn't just opened Elizabeth and Cassie's world to other farmers. It's also provided a direct line to the public. Farmers, most of us are not natural born spokespeople. I know on our farm, our people that are involved in the production work 2,800 hours average a year. So there's not a whole lot of time to really try to tell the public what we're doing too. You can only juggle so many balls, but social media is a way that if you have five minutes in a day and take some time and just stop and do it, take a picture of what you're doing. Some of our most popular you know, posts have been like, here's the view from the inside of the combine, because a lot of people had no idea all of the computers that were in there. I remember my husband coming back and saying, I want you to start, you know, a Facebook page for us to tell our story. And I thought, this is, this is, sounds so silly. And I I told him, I said, people are going to laugh. Like, why would anybody want to know what we're doing? (laughs) 
And he, it's funny, I still remember that day he said, first they'll laugh and then they'll follow. To be totally honest, I was sort of surprised to learn how active farmers are on social media, how many people are talking to each other, posting from the insides of their combines, and yeah, using humour to make the workday pass, just like the rest of us. In the course of researching this podcast, I uncovered dozens of farming-focused meme accounts, comedians, even singing parody artists. One of the comics, Tim Moffat, agreed to chat to me. My name's Tim. I go as Tim the Dairy Farmer because I'm a dairy farmer and a comedian. That's what I do. And I've been doing comedy for like 18 years. I speak at comedy clubs. I've done family reunions. I've done, uh, heck, at one time I did show at a at uh, a nudist resort. It was great. It was chilly. Not for me. I had my clothes on. They're like, why don't you take your clothes off? Them? <laughs> they paid me to keep mine on. <laughs> But I, I will say this, when you're naked and you laugh, everything jiggles. <laughs> I'm super excited to talk to you because, you know, us, us, the members of public, we don't really have uh, this perception of farmers being funny. You know, farmers, are, they're quite serious. There's a lot of funny farmers. A lot of my friends are funnier than me. So I'm a farmer. Uh, some people think I'm a redneck. Some people call me a hillbilly. I'll tell you the difference. I'm a farmer. I have a truck <laughs> parked in front of my house. Redneck, he's got a truck on blocks parked in front of his house. And the hillbilly, the truck on blocks, is his house. The internet has given comedians like Tim a massive platform to get their material out without needing to book a stage. But alongside the potential, Tim sees risk for, <clears throat> shall we say, overexposure? I do know that comedy has changed since, especially since YouTube took off and uh, Netflix and stuff like that. I think a lot of musicians, artists, comedians, whoever it is, they get all excited about what they're doing and they think, you know what, I'm going to throw this on the internet when everybody see it and it sucks. <laughs> and then your pigeonhole is that guy that sucks for the rest of your life. No, I I'm all for social media. I've got, I'm working on some stuff right now to, I always wanted, this is going to sound weird, but as long as I've been doing this, I always want to be the guy that came out of nowhere. I've been storing all my stuff up like a chick monk and, you know, probably within the six the next six months is when I'll unleash the freery, you know? So <laughs> Unleash the Moffat. Yeah, yeah, we're going to see yeah. you everywhere. I remind him to remember me when he's gotten properly famous. Listen, I grew up, I wasn't the class clown. I was the kid that got in trouble for all the smart-ass comments. You know, I was, I was just that kid. I didn't start doing comedy till I was 32, but it's been great. My goal has never been to be famous. My goal has never been, it just hasn't. My goal's always been to do my best to help people forget about the bad times for a while. I don't care what your job is. I think in life, you always have to look for comic relief in something. From the urge to commiserate and laugh at our problems, to having our lives totally transformed by technology, we have more in common than we realize. The same forces that move urban society move agriculture too. 
And the advances we talked about today have made our lives so convenient, so efficient, that we're finally able to reflect on how we're living. Is this as good as it gets? Or can we do better? For me, that can go from something small, like a change you make at home that has environmental sustainability impact, to big, complex challenges like our food systems or our health systems. That's Sinead Duffy, Bayer's NGO liaison, who we'll meet with next episode. It makes one wonder, can the digital revolution really solve those challenges? Is technology our ticket to a more perfect future? One where no one's hungry and the planet is thriving? Hmm, not quite. We know that big data is nothing without big human brains and big ideas. So, while the robots are rising, we're going to need them. The people and ideas we'll discuss next episode with technology on their side, well, together they may really save the world. You can find episodes three and four of Tomorrow Farm wherever you find your podcasts. And if you want an even richer experience with behind-the-scenes footage and more detail that couldn't be squeezed into each episode, go to cropscience.bayer.com. Thanks to Nalini Polavarapu, Pat Christie, Cassie Tom-Rowland, Elizabeth James, Tim Moffat and Ben Wellington for contributing to this episode. To our audio crew, Bernie, Jay and Brent, you guys are the best. Our video crew, Sean, Kirsten, Brandon, thank you for always finding the best lighting. None of this works without our producer, Thomas. And thank you to everyone at Bayer who made this possible and let us run wild. Beth, Danielle, Lindsay, Chris, and most especially Julia. Till next time, this has been Vonnie Lee on Tomorrow Farm. You don't have to wait to hear from me again. Episodes three and four are available right now. <laughs>